0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, your host for the New Books Network, and I'm here with Dr. Kareem Kupchandani, an educator, scholar, and performer, to discuss his new book, Decolonize Drag. Kareem is author of the award-winning book, Ishtail, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife, and his work is invested in feminist, queer, and trans aesthetics, particularly in South Asia and its diaspora. Kareem is an Associate Professor of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies at Tufts University. Thank you for being here with me, Kareem. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here and to talk to you. Awesome. Awesome. Can we start with Lahore Vajastan? Uh, sure. <laughs> our our favorite overeducated, overopinionated, overdressed South Asian drag auntie opens the book with the perspective that protesting BLM and law enforcement violence against Black citizens have everything to do with drag, which is informing the reader that drag is playful and deeply political. When did the concept of writing Decolonized Drag come to you? And why was it important that the book open and close with Lahore Vajastan's voice?
1: Wow. Um, um. Yes. It's so important to start there. So I'll, I'll start with say, kind of the logistics of this book. Um, I was finishing my first monograph, style, and... I got an email from the editor of the series, Decolonize That, Bhakti Sringerpur, and she said, do you want to write another book? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she said, well, it's for a popular press with a wide readership. Um, it's focused on radical politics and, uh, and its relationship to cult- uh, our everyday cultures. And it is uh, a series called Decolonize That. And would you consider writing about decolonized drag? And I had never thought about that. You know, it was an idea that was actually offered to me and it was really exciting because what it did was it allowed me to pull together all the pieces of ethnography that didn't live inside of my monograph. You know, when you do ethnographic work, you you just have a lot of data. And not everything belongs inside of one book. And so this was really a, a gift and an opportunity that she was giving me to, to think with all these other pieces of my, my first book, which actually opens with the line, I fucking love drag queens. And then talk about how I couldn't find drag queens during my uh, fieldwork, um, at the beginning of my fieldwork. So it was just a it was a lovely opportunity, and it felt exciting and urgent, um, especially as we think about decolonization as uh, a practice based approach to doing the work of critical po- politics. Right, um, decolonization is not simply an em- epistemic project. Right, one of, of about that thinks about. How we know what we know, and and how our knowledge systems have been colonized, but also understands that practice is knowledge, and that that too has been uh, managed and controlled and and privatized. And so and so I, and I say all this to get to the the point of opening and closing with my drag persona Lahore, Vajistan, because. She's she's how I've learned um, how managed and controlled my knowledge practices have been, you know, Um, she's she's the one who teaches me that like being in my body is actually a way of knowing as much as reading is, you know, sitting and interpreting a song in order to put it on a stage being in community with others for a show and sharing resources backstage, all of those practices um, of sharing, of analysis, of, you know, even we talk about reading, reading um, in which, you know, drag artists are sort of, critiquing each other is a practice of critique, right? It's a practice of seeing and understanding and reinterpreting to others. So again, all of these knowledge systems exist in practice and, and beyond the academy, and it's through drag, which I started in graduate school, that I learned the, uh, those things. And so that's why I open and close with Lahore um, and her voice, um, because it it helps me land the point that this is about doing as much as it is about thinking about the, the questions uh, that the book is interested in.
0: Speaking of seeing the, the photos you include in the book provide a visual and intellectual expansion for the viewer, um, like informing us that drag is more than the generic, the static images we're culturally accustomed to seeing. How did you decide what visuals would best expand our interpretation of the performance genre, if that was even your intention?
1: Yeah, um... <sighs> Visuals for books are not easy <laughs> uh, they're not um, and so it it, it I, I picked my favorites. I mean, you know, I think it's it's fair to say like there there's some performers whose work I truly love and that has really moved me so including Miss Toto who does this wild Harriet Tubman number where she, um, she uses the song, the song come on ride the train to be the underground railroad but i i i've there's a live version of it that was filmed for and is on youtube but she also made a version of it during the pandemic where she actually films herself running through the woods there was, there's was this whole moment of like digital drag and so you know there were two different sets of visuals for that and i was i was just so moved and excited and I thought it was very hilarious and and the amount of costuming she she and effort she put to make her own outfit um with her little lantern running literally running outside you know we usually think of drag as being in the club and I write a lot about nightlife um as that's been the center of my research but then there's this this video of her being out in the world which I think is in um, interrupts, again, like you said, interrupts what we think of as drag. Um, there are There's a, a photo of Papi Churro, who is an Indigenous Latinx drag artist. And one of the things I was struck by when I saw his pandemic music video was his use of feathers and their iridescence and his use of gold. And, uh, and, and, and he uses exactly those uh, metals and feathers to indicate his indigenous heritage. So again, these visual practices are so important to telling the stories of um, responding to uh, uh, colonial violence that I wanted to make sure that they were there and visible. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the book describing aesthetics, so again, it was it was actually very important for me to include images and then there's an image of Lahore who just looks stunning um and she had to be in there. Uh, but there's also a picture of Lahore's daughter, uh, Kamani Sutra, who is a uh, a bearded drag artist and I, I I talk in the book about how hair and femininity are often. Not considered compatible, and and I wanted to make sure that the reader could see how beautiful bearded drag could be, um, and so so th- those are some of the different reasons that these images are the ones that are in there, and then there there are several more that um, they're 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 all performances that I was really excited about, and there's a lot of performance that that I've seen that doesn't get written in the book because couldn't write it all, but, um, I wanted to make sure that some of my favorites got, got to be featured. Uh, and I, and I know that they deserve the, they deserve the publicity too. They're, they're absolutely fabulous. These performers.
0: Was there a performer that you wanted to add that you just couldn't for, you know, time for, you know, word count that you're like, Oh, I wish I would have gotten this performer in.
1: You you know it, it it it's it wasn't a matter of word count or I think it was a matter of my organization okay. and didn't and didn't and didn't register that sh- they should have been in there but um, well there are a couple and and especially you know now now I, I I miss that they're not in there given the the current political climate but um, Mama Ghanoush and Halal Bey are both phenomenal um, uh, Palestinian artists. And and doing really important critical work to to help queer queer and trans audiences understand how they're implicated in um, in systems of settler colonialism um, through really fabulous performance and dress. You know, again, it's it's always there's so much labor that goes into creating these visual landscapes and stories. So so even you know I. I have this this chapter that critiques Ru- Ru- RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race in the in the book, but I also offer these examples of performers who use their platform to do something else um, with with the show. And Halalbe, in particular, in particular, wears a dress that says "Stop Displacing Us." Um, and uh, made with kafia fabric and so i i think it's just a, a an example i wish that had made it in there there are a couple of other palestinian artists that are in the book but i it i i miss having having that uh story in there
0: okay. and speaking of rupaul's drag race ta- chapter three of the book is dedicated to neo, neo-realism and the analysis of that show and what white supremacy and capitalism look like within that particular empire when did you know that you wanted to add that particular subject to your book <laughs> and was lahore oh. bajistan in cahoots with it was she like yes let's talk about it <laughs> well
1: i decided i didn't i i didn't write that chapter initially i submitted it to my editor And the book was four chapters and I was very happy with it. And she sent it back to me and said, this is great, but we need a chapter on RuPaul because she's she is the specter through which you're writing and she comes up, but she doesn't you don't stage her. And it's it's not fair to her to sort of imply that we can critique her without actually critiquing her. And so I was like, "Yeah, I have to. I have to do it, but I have to do it responsibly, and I have to do it maybe extensively." Um, and I think, you know, actually, I, I sort of end that chapter saying, "Lahore, Rajasthan will probably never get on Drag Race." After writing this, and I think that that's, and I've, and I have auditioned a couple of times for the show, and I, I you know, and I, I think that so lahore is probably a little bit disappointed in me but i think the show is excellent i think the show's is, is really phenomenal but it also reproduces lots of problems um and it's and it's it's it's, it's, it's production that is really quite uh problematic not necessarily the contestants, right? So so it does give platform to some really interesting, politically savvy, uh, thoughtful people of color and indigenous folks across the franchise. Like, you know, so I complain about the, the franchise going global and like flattening what we think drag is, but it also at the same time creates platforms for other folks. So I don't want people to stop watching the show. I don't want people to dislike the show but i want i do want people to be critical of it i you know before we got on this call i was watching the show with having my having my tea right it's it's always in the background i do i learn so much from the contestants i just think that there's a way that it has been produced that has reduced and simplified the the political economy of drag so this is this is where we get the term neoliberalism <laughs> And and again, you know, I'm working inside of the the logic of the show. RuPaul loves puns and loves to include her name in everything, and and so I, I don't want to deny that I like know the show well and that I um, I care for the show, right? And this th- that critique is here as an act of care to hold something that I love to a better standard. So so it was it was my uh, my editors uh request to to have a chapter on RuPaul and it made a lot of sense. And and I I know that p- p- friends of mine who have read it are like, ooh, that was harsh. And it is, you know, to have a whole chapter critiquing <laughs> one thing feels exhausting and exhaustive. But I think that it one, it, it consolidates voices from the from academics and public writers and contestants on the show themselves who who all have these critiques of of the show and the the way that it shapes the drag industry and creates standards that are really hard to live by uh for for up-and-coming drag artists who are like now i have to go and buy really expensive things in order to be an artist it creates uh challenging conditions for these for the contestants who when they come off the show are now circulating in this like global drag economy in which they don't know how to manage their finances or their personal lives. And there's no kind of buffer or education for what it means to be on the show on a reality show and then leave. And, and one of the things I point out is that they've actually like Latrice Royale and Shangela from the show have actually stepped in to help other Queens manage their their tours and their schedules and their finances, because it it can be so strenuous and because so many of them have lost money in the process of coming off the show, and then there's also the the kinds of mental health uh, struggles they face because they just they get these new fan bases that are not local to the city or region they were performing in, and that they uh, and and now there are all these anonymous folks on Twitter who are shaming them and frankly bullying them. And they don't know how to, how to cope with that. And the show doesn't give them strategies. Right. So, so it relies on their labor, but it does not take care of their bodies and their minds beyond, beyond the moment of the show uh, or of recording. And so, and of course the show being a reality show tries to set up, um, all kinds of drama between them as well right but that's within within its universe it's sort of expected but beyond that moment what is being done to care for these contestants so i incorporate their their own critiques of the show into into the the book so it's not that i'm just coming as an outsider to say look how look how challenging this show is, but to say, actually, people who have been on the show have similar critiques as well. And then, of course, one of the major critiques that's come out about the show from popular public audiences, but also contestants, is its transphobia and its use of transphobic language and, and even logics about who can be on the show, and especially the US franchise that doesn't allow cis women or has not, or has not had cis women on the show. Um, I don't think they'll say they don't allow, they just, but, but before early on, they used to, when I auditioned, they are like film in your boy look and film in your drag look. Right. Um, but they're expecting that the person who is auditioning is a boy. Right? right. So, so even, even my own experience of like going through that application informs how, how I think of the show and, and approach it. It is, it, it, it was a challenge to write, you know, it's a, it's scary to critique uh, a powerful public figure. Um, it's it's scary to, to critique a thing you love because does that mean that you'll, you know, after doing all this research, would I hate it? <laughs> and, and the thing is I don't want people to hate the show after that. I, I, it's a similar thing I did with my, my monograph on nightlife was to say here are all its problems, but it also offers beauty and and community and surprising moments of risk taking that can be really life-saving. So I don't want to deny anybody that opportunity for access to those things. And so it's so I think we have to understand that criticism is is not about barring access to something either.
0: Right. That you can love a thing and also see the holes and the problematic aspects of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. While outlining the ways that, that race and ethnicity and, and location and class and disability matter in performing, you write drag. Isn't just about gender, but so many other facets of being, like our social and political histories, um, which you provide very in-depth historical context around the performance genre. And um, while I do want to, want you to delve a little bit into that, a little bit, because we do want the people to go read the book, but also there was a, a performance that Lahore Vajastan gave where you invited your students to it and there was a spectator that said to one of them oh this isn't real drag can we talk about that and where that spectator got the gall to say that and is that something that are those conversations being had in in drag performances
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, you know, this this was a, an older white man who actually put his hands over my student who was clapping, like put his hands on his hands and was like, stop clapping. They're not real drag queens. And this, I but th- there is definitely a discourse of that's not real drag. You know, if a trans woman is doing feminine drag, well, she's just being a trans woman. is And so that's not real drag, right? And so there's this, Uh, and and I'm not saying that that's correct. I'm saying that that's an opinion that exists that uses this logic of something, X is not real drag, right? In order to foreclose people's access to the art form. And so one of the things to ask ourselves is where have we gotten the idea of what real drag is? And one is that it's produced inside of the community, inside of the performance community, um, where... You know cis uh cis women who perform in drag are are given a different name right like folk queens or bio queens um but they're not they're not just called drag queens you know so so they're they're given that secondary name to suggest they're not doing real drag either um and of course we know these categories come also come from a place of trying to equalize the playing field a little bit and and say we need to lift them up but but this idea of something that something's not real drag i think also affects a lot of people who who don't have access to the resources of what we think real drag involves like really expensive costumes and makeup and outfits and um, Whose, whose bodies don't move in gender conforming ways. And, and we can think about how uh, folks with disabilities cannot uh, reproduce gender in some of the most conforming ways that we think. And, and therefore, we might not understand, understand them to be doing quote unquote real drag. Um, so so it, it makes us step back and think about okay, so what, are, what do we think? What are we calling real? <laughs> When we call um and and it, and it often means doing things in the most gender-conforming ways uh and and that those gender-conforming ways specifically conform to uh white upper-class able-bodied uh forms of gender presentation and so when me and my friends were doing drag at this South Asian night in Chicago and some were not using makeup and some were still very hairy and some you could see their beard through uh, their um, their makeup and some are just fine dancers and I'm talking about myself, <laughs> you know, um, all of those things, you know, when you're not doing splits and flips and when you're not doing Celine Dion and Mariah Carey as your songs... Are you really doing drag? Um, and even you know, I think Alaska has has that line about like, um, if you if you're not wearing wigs, are you, uh, you're not doing drag, right? Um, so even even the, just that sort of jokey line is this this question of like, do you need a wig to do drag? And and one of the one of the places it, it leads me is to actually think about a lot of. Trans feminine dancers in India that I witnessed, who still present as male and masculine for a variety of uh, reasons of caste and class and mobility and uh, family obligation but are the fiercest performers I've ever seen. And they do drag in their bodies, right? They do drag through dance. And the way that they hit poses and the way that they recreate Bollywood and and Tollywood stars in their bodies is draggier than anything I've ever seen on on the New York stages. And in the nightclubs, and they're doing them, you know, at um, street festivals, and they're doing them in NGO lobbies, and they're doing them in people's homes. But it's like, they really, it, they, they spark that kind of um, diva worship in their audiences, just through their bodies, they, you know, in their men's clothes, barefoot, you know, they don't need heels, they don't need wigs, they don't need makeup, they don't need dress. Their whole, their body can do drag, and so why can't why can't we call that drag? And who has told us that that's not real drag, right? And so that's that's one of the things that um, I'm hoping my readers think about is where have I learned what real drag is? Who's who's taught me that, and how can I undo that and think about more categories of performance as drag, and 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 what's at stake in not. And, and saying that's not dragon, this is right? Who are we, who are we policing and who are we protecting uh, when we when we do that?
0: Speaking of what you want readers to, to take from decolonized drag, how do you envision your readers engaging with the book? And what else do you hope that they'll experience while reading it?
1: So you mentioned this earlier, but one is this takeaway that drag is not just about gender, you know, and and I and it's it's I think it's a radical claim because the definition of dra- of drag is always going to be about gender, right? Mm-hmm. About putting gender on the body, mimicking gender, trying on gender, all of those things. Um, but. I spend a lot of time in the first two chapters trying to teach the reader that gender is not just intersectional to other identities, but it is co-constituted by other uh, social categories, right? So it's not that gender and race intersect, but actually race makes gender. Um, Race, uh, you know, our understandings of race make, our historically informed understandings of race make it such that Asian American men can often not achieve masculinity um, or are assumed to be better at femininity. And these are these come from um, uh, practices and 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 uh, policies of colonial uh, of colonization. Similarly, black women are often not not given or offered access to femininity. And and are assumed to be too masculine, but that allows them to win. That that sort of like really rudimentary uh, effed up understanding of the black body allows them to win drag king competitions, right? So, so how do how are they mobilizing colonial logics to actually feel some kind of joy and fun in the club, right? So it's so I'm not saying it's simple. Right? and 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 when we you know if if we're gonna take seriously 400, 500 years of history um, to understand what's going on on the drag stage, it's ne- it's never simple, right but right. but I am saying that we if we look if we look at drag through the lens of race, disability, class, and also gender, we realize that they actually make each other up and that, and 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 that they they're not separate categories, and so so I I do want my re- readers to sort of meditate on those questions and the implications of what it means to do drag and how to do it. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't perform if you if you're not South Asian, you can't perform a South Asian song. But what are you doing when you do that? How does it land on your body when you when you when you do that? Right. And so this is this is this leads us to the other end of the book, which is how do you do drag? And so so there's a bunch of takeaways for the for the reader to think about how do I find my drag name? How do I decide what song to perform? How do I decide where to um, where to perform? Should I use dress? Should I put clothes on while I'm performing? Should I take them off? Literally, uh, uh, giving the audience ro- the reader room to think through all of the small and big questions of how to do drag. So it, it's it's the the last chapter is a kind of how to that breaks down. Everything from makeup to drag names to dress to location to tipping—that think about that thinks about the the politics of all of those things and how they're implicated in uh, structures of power and 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 again, you know, it's it's not to say here's what you should do to decolonize, but here are some questions you can ask yourself. So, an example I give is the narrowing of the nose through contour, and that. Often the narrowing of the nose is this way of uh, producing white femininity, and it. Uh, but for those who have been made fun of for having a, a wider nose, do you want to try on what it feels like to be liked for that beauty, right? Or do you want to refuse? And uh, conforming to standards of white femininity, both are opportunities to feel something different in your body and know and and produce uh, social effects, right? And this this is this is another one of the takeaways that you know, um, as a performance studies scholar, I'm really invested in is that. Drag is about performance and performance is about the exterior too. It's about producing social effects between the performer and the and the witness. So how are you going to create an effect in the world, right? By choosing the right makeup and song and... Um, even the right kind of eyelashes will do something for you, right? Will make people feel something. The right kind of mustache will invoke a whole history. Like each of these uh, um, objects that we put on the body can change uh, can can change how people receive us. And I, I I I listen to a lot of podcasts about fashion and dress and style. And a lot of them focus on like one, one style of dress or one uh, thing at a time, and they all—all all of these things have histories: uh, rings and mustaches and pockets and um, bouffants. Right. Every single uh, thing has a has a social history, which means that it can have an impact on the audience. So, can we think carefully about what we put on the body? And not just what it does to us, but what it might do to an audience when they see it, right? How might it invoke histories and feelings for them that they are not actually conscious of? And and thinking about this, there's one thing I do when I teach my critical drag class is uh, I ask my students to research one technology of the body, you know, and they'll write about skirts or heels or corsets or banana powder to. to find out where did, where did it come from? What is it? And what they'll usually find almost, almost always, they'll, they'll find that um, there are racialized and gendered histories to all of these things that heels that we assume to be highly feminine were actually worn by men. Um, that's, you know, skirts, skirts have been worn across, across cultures and across genders in many different ways. You know, it. um, and so all, all of these objects we put on the bodies have not, I say social history, but they have political histories as well of creating uh, conditions of power and relations of power. And so what happens when you put them on? Like we're, we're making very deliberate choices and I'm trying to help my reader think about what choices they make, whether it's in the everyday or on the drag stage about what we put on the body, what we take off the body as well.
0: Thank you so much. Kareem for for this interview, and not only just the interview, but writing and publishing decolonized drag. It is such an informative read, um, and it's has it published. It's published already. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's got yeah. a very beautiful
1: shiny cover. Yes,
0: it does. It's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I was like, ooh, this this cover is cute. But thank you so much for being here with that, being here with me this morning, and and giving us. I'm um, such great, great writing. If you can go and get Decolonized Rag, please go get it now. It is out. It is published. Thank you. Thank you, Kareem.
1: Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.